Hello, this is Rabbi Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called More Nevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. This is Daniel Karapkin speaking to you from Toronto, Ontario, in Canada, where I'm the rabbi of the Bayez, Beth Avram Yosef of Toronto. Uh, we are recording also um, for webyeshiva.org, which is uh, an amazing platform of Torah education. And we are studying the text, Moren Nevuchim, Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed. We have been doing so for quite some time. We are now in uh, the first section, chapter 73, where the Rambam finds himself in a disputation with a group of religious philosophers known as the Mutakalimun or the Midabrim, or we could say Kalamists as well. And as we've been discussing over the last few weeks, these are people who are extremely thoughtful and extremely devout in their religious devotion. And based on certain theological principles, they have uh, arrived at certain conclusions about God in the universe and the Rambam feels that both their methodology and their conclusions are somewhat flawed. And so um, the Rambam had devoted himself uh, to trying to explain in chapter 73 what the premises of these mutakaliman are, what they believe, and what sort of like their basic principles of faith as far as how the universe operates. So I'm going to share my screen with you so that we can uh, look at continue the um, the uh, the handout that we had started with last week. Um, we went through one through five, and we explained that the Mutakalimun are atomists. They believe that the entire universe is made up of very small, tiny particles that connect and disconnect um, based on God's will, that vacuums exist and are the stuff between atoms, and that time is atomic as well, and that there is no such thing as a continuum or a flow of time but there is only now, and that what was a moment ago was a completely separate creation, and what will be a moment from now is also a completely separate creation from God. Number four, every substance, every atom must possess an accident, and the term accident, we basically uh, explained that every substance in Aristotelian philosophy has either intrinsic or extrinsic qualities. An intrinsic quality, let's say, if I wanted to say that I, as a human being, have intrinsic qualities, it means that I have an intellect, or it means that I have certain features that uniquely define me as being a human being. An extrinsic quality is something like I have um, brown hair, or I have blue eyes. Those are things that, if I had them or didn't have them, would not make me any more or less human. Arms, legs, other organs that a person without them would still be a human being are extrinsic qualities. The, uh, the Mutakalimun believe that because every um, small little atom that exists that makes up all of reality is devoid of any intrinsic qualities, everything is added to each and every atom. 
And that is um, what we call an accident. It's that extrinsic quality of, let's say, being an atom of fabric or being an atom of red, red fabric and so forth. And these accidents reside in the atoms. That's what we saw last in number five. And now we're up to number six, which each accident exists only for an instant. And here the Rambam really brings home to us something that is going to really, this is probably number six and number 10 are the most dramatic of the 12 premises of the Mutakalimun. And this premise essentially suggests something that we actually affirm in our prayers every day. That God is that God is constantly renewing the act of creation. And so we call the title of our shir for our, uh, our discussion for today, Does God Indeed Renew Creation on a Constant Basis? The Mutakalimun basically say that God is constantly stripping each atom of its, um, of its quality and then recreating it at every given moment. And therefore, he starts the chapter on, so it starts on page 200 in the Pines edition. He starts the chapter by saying it consists in their assertion, the sixth premise, that an accident does not last during two units of time. That every, since time is atomic and every time is moment is, is fleeting, that God creates the, um, the attribute or the quality of the atom in question at every given moment, then removes that quality and then creates it again. The meaning of this premise is that they think that God may be glorified and magnified, creates an atom and creates together with it at one and the same time, any accident he wills as an accident subsisting in the atom. And so it seems like, at least at this point, what he's saying is, is that atoms are constantly recreated because the universe is anew at every given moment. There's Again, there's only now. And when God creates the atom, concomitant with that creation of that atom is its attribute. For it may not be predicated of him may he be exalted that he has the power to create an atom without an accident. If, according to their rules of physics, an atom cannot exist without its attribute. Just like in Aristotelian philosophy, matter cannot exist without form. Um, so that's sort of a parallel between what the Kalamists believe and what the Rambam believes. Now, the true reality of an accident and its notion consists in it's not enduring or lasting during two units of time, cannot last more than that one instant. While this accident is being created, it disappears having no continued existence, whereupon God creates another accident of the same species, which accident disappears in turn whereupon he creates a third one belonging to the same species and so on always in the same way in the period during which God wishes the species of that accident to last. And we gave the analogy last time as well. It's like a celluloid roll of film where each frame is a separate existence, is a separate reality. So you might be watching a movie of a person with a red sweater walking along the scene, walking along the stage. But the reality is that that's not the same person from one frame to the, to the next, just like it's really two pictures or three pictures or 10 pictures of the same person, not the same picture that's moving, but rather each frame is separate. Uh, the Mutakalimun believe existentially that's what's going on, that God is constantly recreating and recreating and recreating. If, however, 
uh, he may be exalted, wishes to create in the Adam another species of accident, he does so. There is nothing compelling God to make, to ensure that that red sweater remains a red sweater from one frame to the next. He does it because this is his will. And there's no other explanation other than the fact that God is willing this. Okay. So, uh, he, he, however, he refrains from the act of creation and does not create a new accident. The atom in question simply becomes non-existent. Now, we're going to skip in our text. Let's skip to page 201. What led them to this opinion is that it is not to be said that there is a nature in any respect, whatever, and the nature of one particular body may require that this and that accident be attached to that body. And this is a very important point that the Rambam is making. This is really a point of major dramatic departure between the Rambam and the Mutakalimun. The Mutakalimun believe that there is no such thing as rules of nature, of laws of physics that God embedded within creation. Because God is constantly creating and recreating, God can do whatever he wishes and can change anything at, at, at a moment's notice, at, at instantaneously. And so, um, and that's because everything is constantly existent through God's continuous active involvement in the process of creation at every given moment. Quite the contrary, they wish to say that God, may he be exalted, created the accidents in question now without the intermediary of nature, without any other thing. And so there is no intermediary force as, as the Rambam quoting the Aristotelians and the Neoplatonists of his time believe that while God is constantly maintaining creation, it is through a series of intermediaries, which we call nature, different forces, which God put into motion. It's almost as if the Rambam is closer to Newtonian science than the Mutakalimun. The Mutakalimun believed that if it weren't for God constantly creating and recreating in every single second, um, the world would cease to exist. But the Rambam says, while it's true that God's existence is a necessary uh, cause and is a necessary premise for the existence of the world, but it's not that he's constantly creating and recreating, but rather that he is put into motion certain forces like gravity and centrifugal force and other different principles of physics that allows the maintenance and the continuity and a continuum of nature as we know it. Now, we're, we're not going to read every single point of the Rambam because he then delves into certain subtle differences within different Mutakalimun schools between the Mutazilites and the Asherites and certain individual uh, opinions within each one of those sects of the Mutakalimun, which are really not helpful for us to, to try and, and fully grasp. But I just want to skip to the bottom of the page. Um, um, in accordance with this premise, they assert that when we, as we think, dye a garment red, it is not we who are by any means the dyers. You, it may look like I am taking a piece of wool and dropping it into a vat of red dye. And because of my effort, the dye turns the woolen, uh, the raw wool into red wool. That's not at all what's actually going on when we look at it scientifically from the lens of the Mutakalimun. God rather creates the color in, the, in question in the garment 
when the latter is in juxtaposition with the red dye, which we consider to have gone over to the garment. It is God who creates the transference from the redness of the dye to the redness of the wool. It is not I who have done that, it is God who has done that. And it is not because there is a proximity or any chemical reaction that is taking place between the dye and the vat and the wool, but rather God simply takes the uh, quality of redness from the dye and infuses it into the wool. And he could just as easily do so if the wool was outside the vat. But the fact that he does it is that God allows us to believe that our actions are of consequence when in reality it is all an illusion. Okay. Um, they say that this is not the case, uh, but that God has instituted a habit according to which, for example, blue color does not appear except when a garment is juxtaposed with indigo. However, this blackness, which God creates when an object about to turn black is juxtaposed with blackness, does not last, but disappears instantly and another blackness is created. So therefore, the black or the red wool that has just been dyed um, is, has been dyed by God's will, and that wool disappears and is recreated, and its blackness is also has disappeared and has been recreated at every frame of this movie that we call reality. God has also instituted the habit of not creating, after the disappearance of the previous blackness, any other color other than black. God conforms to, to certain conventions, but he doesn't have to. If God wanted to, then in an instant, the black garment could instantly turn yellow or red or green. But God conforms and he says that just because it was black a second ago, I will recreate it again as a black garment. Okay, in conformity with this assumption, they have drawn the corollary that the things we know now are not identical with the contents of the knowledge known by us yesterday. And this is an important corollary as well. How does this pertain to the human being? I, as a human being, am not the same person that I was a moment ago. My ideas are constantly being recreated in my mind by God. And so therefore, even though I have this faculty called memory, where I remember something that I had thought about yesterday, it's really not a carryover from yesterday, my thoughts, but rather God takes the thoughts that existed a moment ago and re-implants them within me every single moment and is creating my knowledge again and again and again on a, on a um, linear basis, every single instant, every single moment. They maintain this, they maintain that this is so because knowledge is also considered what they call an accident or an extrinsic quality of, of reality. Similarly, it necessarily behooves those who believe that the soul is an accident to consider that to take an example, 100,000 souls are created every minute for the requirement of every being endowed with a soul. He just throws out a huge number, basically says, if, if I'm being recreated every single moment, then my neshama is also being recreated every single moment. And therefore, over the course of even a small unit of time of one minute, hundreds of thousands of versions of me and of my soul are constantly being recreated. For as you know, according to them, uh, for time according to them is composed of indivisible instants. In conformity with this premise, and this is a very famous uh, or well-known or often quoted um, uh, statement that the Rambam makes about the Mutakalimun, 
they assert that when a man moves a pen, it is not the man who moves it, or the motion occurring in the pen is an accident created by, by God in the pen. So when I pick up a pen and it looks like I am the one who's responsible for its movement, I am not moving the pen, but rather God is moving the pen along. It looks like I've picked up the pen and am moving it, but it is really God who moves my hand and recreates my hand constantly. It is God who keeps the, the pen in motion because there's nothing intrinsic about the pen that would cause it to move other than God. Similarly, the motion of the hand, which we think of as moving the pen, is an accident created by God in the moving hand. Only God has instituted the habit that the motion of the hand is concomitant with the motion of the pen. It looks like that there's cause and effect, that there's causality. Because I'm moving my hands, the pen is moving. But there is no causality according to, to the Mutakaliman. And this is really the gist of the sixth premise. There is no causality. This pen is not moving because my hand is moving. My hand is moving because God wills it to move. And the pen is moving because God wills it to move. And it's got nothing to do with the fact that my hand is moving, that the pen is moving. All of this, everything exists independently and is by God's will directly. Without the hand exercising in any respect an influence on or being causative in regard to the motion of the pen. For they maintain that an accident does not uh, go beyond its substratum. There's not one accident that could lead to another accident or to another quality in something else or in itself. And I'm going to, um, uh, to, to skip again. To sum up, it should not be said in any respect that this is the cause of that. This is the opinion of the multitude of the Mutakalimun. And one of the Mutakalimun maintained the doctrine of causality and in consequence was regarded as abhorrent by them. In other words, this is a theological principle as much as it is a philosophical principle. Theologically, the Mutakalimun believed in seeing the hand of God in every single atom of every single second of every single split second of existence. And it was that, that which brought them to the conclusion that God is constantly creating and recreating. And if anyone were to suggest that there is any kind of causality, that this causes that, and that there's any kind of continuum from one moment to another, or any kind of causation of one thing to another, that person would have been deemed an infidel, um, you know, uh, theologically inconsistent with this very rigid and fundamentalist view of God's involvement with creation. And so therefore, going back to this example of the pen in motion, he says at the bottom of page 202, um, that there are really four things that are going on when you see me moving the pen across the screen. It's the first accident is my will to put the pen into motion. God creates my desire to move the pen. Then God creates my power to put it into motion, my ability to put it into motion. The third thing that God creates is the human motion itself. And the fourth thing that God creates is the motion of the pen. Four things going on at the same time, completely independent of each other, which God creates all at the same time. All right, and, and so uh, I want to um, conclude by skipping to the end of his sixth premise on page 203. Um, accordingly, God creates at every one of the instants, I mean the separate units of time, an accident in every individual among the beings, in every single atom, 
whether that individual be an angel, a heavenly sphere, or something else. This he does constantly at every moment of time. They maintain that this is the true faith in God's activity, and in their opinion, he who does not believe that God acts in this way denies the fact that God acts. Again, it's a theological issue for them. With regard to beliefs of this kind, and the Rambam says this is crazy talk, right? This is really meshuga. He says, it has been said in my opinion and in that of everybody endowed with an intellect, quoting the verse in the book of Job chapter 13, or as one mocks a man, do you so mock him? Do you mock God? This being in truth the very essence of mockery. It's making a galechter, as we say in Yiddish, of God's involvement with the universe. And because the mutakalimun feel that there is no causality, this is a direct affront to the Rambam's uh, sensibilities of being an Aristotelian philosopher. One of the basic premises of Aristotelianism is that there is cause and effect in the universe. And there's one more issue that is so fundamental and essential to the Rambam of why he must reject the Mutakalimun. And I want you to know that the Rambam does not raise that issue in this particular section but he does raise it in another text where he discusses the issue of ethics. Here the Rambam in the Moren of Luchim at this particular section is discussing physics. He's not talking about how physics and ethics are, are dependent upon each other, but the Rambam has a treatise on ethics and just as scientifically, this is unacceptable to the Rambam. Ethically, it's unacceptable to the Rambam too because ultimately, suggesting that I am constantly being recreated and everything that I do is orchestrated and created by God really takes away, in a sense, my free will. And that's a cornerstone of the Rambam's faith. So that man has is endowed with free will. And where do we see this? We see this in the, the treaties that the Rambam wrote on ethics, which is his introduction to Pirkei Avot. The Rambam wrote a, com a Mishnah commentary much earlier in his life than when he wrote the Moren of Uchim. And he, it's almost like a parallel or an adjunct to this text that we're reading now uh, uh, in Moren of Uchim chapter 73. And we're just going to read this text in English. Um, and the Rambam wrote an introduction called Shemona Prakim, the eight chapters. It's basically taking, again, uh, uh, phil philosophical principles on ethics, primarily Muhammad al-Farabi uh, is the source that the Rambam utilized to compose the Shemona Prakim. And the Rambam in the eighth chapter of Shemona Prakim, the eighth and final chapter of this treatise, he writes as follows. He says that it is absolutely essential that every Jew believes in the principle of free will. Therefore says, as regards the theory generally accepted by people, and likewise found in rabbinical and prophetical writings, that man's sitting and rising, and in fact, all of his movements are governed by the will and desire of God, it may be said that this is true only in one respect. In other words, if I've just got through telling you that it is essential for us to believe that man has free will and can always choose between doing good or doing evil, turning right or turning left, doing what is right versus doing what is wrong, then how do our sages in the same breath say that everything happens by the hand of God? If everything happens by the hand of God, then where is my free will? That's the essential question. Thus, for instance, when a stone is thrown into the air and falls to the ground, it is correct to say that the stone fell in accordance with God's will. 
For it is true that God decreed that the earth and all that goes to make it up should be the center of attraction so that when any part of it is thrown into the air, it is, it is attracted back to the center. The Rambam is subscribing to the medieval belief in gravitational force, not really calling it gravity because that's not something that was defined until much later, until uh, Isaac Newton. But the point is, is that he says there is this physics that God conforms to it, so that when you throw a rock in the air, what goes up must come down. Now, that's by God's will. But what is God's will? God's will is that there should be a set of rules that we call nature or the rules of physics. Similarly, all the particles of fire ascend according to God's will. Things that are heated rise, which preordain that fire should go upward. But it is wrong to suppose that when a certain part of the earth is thrown upward, God wills at that very moment that it should fall. The Mutakawimun are, however, of a different opinion in this regard. For I have heard them say that the divine will is constantly at work, decreeing everything from time to time. We do not agree with them, but believe that the divine will ordained everything at creation and that all things at all times are regulated by the laws of nature and run their natural course in accordance with what Solomon said, as it was, so it will ever be, as it was made, so it continues. And the Ein Chadash Tachat Hashemesh. God, there is no newness to creation. There's nothing new under the sun, but rather God put everything into motion. But everything continues to operate by God's will, but God is not constantly recreating. This occasion, the sages to say that all miracles which deviate from the natural course of events, whether they already occurred or according to promise are to take place in the future, were foreordained by the divine will during the six days of creation, nature being then so constituted that those miracles which were to happen really did afterwards take place. Even miraculous phenomena were embedded in creation at the time of creation, which the Rambam is now foreshadowing something that the Mishnah will mention in the fifth chapter of Pirkei Avot. Then when such an occurrence happened at its proper time, it may have been regarded as an absolute innovation, but in reality it was not. The rabbis expatiate very much upon the subject in the Medrash Kohelis and in other writings. One of their statements in reference to this matter being, which says, everything follows its natural course. In everything that they said, you will always find that the rabbis, peace upon them, avoided referring to the divine will as determining a particular event at a particular time. And this, of course, is necessary for the Rambam's principle of free will, as he will now explain. When therefore they said that man rises and sits down in accordance with the will of God, their meaning was that when man was first created, his nature was so determined that rising up and sitting down were to be optional to him. God says, you have the option of standing and sitting. When you stand of your own volition, I have willed that to be your choice. When you sit based on your decision to sit, that's also according to my will because I want you to make those decisions. But they as little meant that God wills at any special moment that man should or should not get up as he determines at any given time that a certain stone should or should not fall to the ground. The sum and substance of the matter is then that you should believe that just as God willed that man should be upright in stature, broad-chested and have fingers, likewise did he will that man should move or rest of his own accord, and that his action should be such as his own free will dictates to him. 
without any outside influence or restraint, which fact God clearly states in the truthful law, which elucidates this problem when it says, behold, the man has become one of us to know good and evil. And this is a statement that is foundational, that man has the choice to choose between good and evil, and it's God's will that man choose freely. The Targum, in paraphrasing this passage, explains the meaning of the words "mimenu ladaat tovara," which means he is one of like one of us to know good and evil. Man has become the only being in the world who possesses a characteristic which no other being has in common with him. What is this characteristic? It is that by and of himself, man can distinguish between good and evil and do that which he pleases with absolutely no restraint. Since then, this is so. It would have been impossible, it would have even been possible for him to have stretched out his hand and taking the tree of life to have eaten of its fruit and thus live forever. Now we're, we're getting close to our time limit, so I, I want us to be able to take this one very important point. Um, there was an article that came out some 40 or 50 years ago from Rav Arya Carmel, the, one, the key disciple of Rav Eliyahu Dessler, the redactor, and the redactor of the Rav Dessler's writings, Mikhtav Melio. He published this article in Hamayan, volume 25, and he quotes uh, a, a point that Reb Dessler writes, quoting earlier Kabbalists and basic presumptions about what we as Jews view as basic theology of God's workings of the universe. And he writes as follows, Kishan, the, the Reb Dessler writes in the Chav Melio as follows, source number three. Kishanu ro'im dvarim when we see things changing or in motion in the world, in reality, we think that it's the same object, but just that it moved or it changed color and so forth. And similarly, when we saw something a moment ago sitting on the table motionless and we see it again right now, it's the same object that was there a moment ago, that's the same object that I'm looking at now. Aval eno came, but that is not the case. But when we watch a motion picture and it looks like the people are moving in the movie, but in reality, it's really just separate frames on the celluloid that are being manipulated in such a way that it creates the optical illusion of flow and continuity, the same thing is true with creation. We are caught up in the, in the motion of time, and so things appear to us as being fluid and flowing from one moment to the next. This is the same reality. But God is constantly recreating reality every single instant. Okay, where the previous reality is almost exactly like the current reality with very subtle changes so that it looks like things are in motion. And therefore it just looks like everything is the same. And with every cause and effect, it's not that the cause brings about the effect, but rather they are merely adjacent to each other and the true cause of everything that happens is God himself 
who is constantly renewing the act of creation. Now, if I were to ask, is Rav Dessler a Kalamist or is he a Maimonidean? I don't think that there's any question in anyone's mind that Rav Dessler is actually reflecting a model of reality that is just like the Mutakalimun and completely antithetical to the Rambam's belief of reality. Of, because the Rambam believes that causality is absolutely necessary in order for free will to be of any particular meaning and purpose and significance. Rav Carmel is very disturbed by this because if, as the Rambam asserts, that causality is necessary for the idea of free will to be significant, so then how can Rav Dessler side with the Mutakalimun and not with Maimonides? And he suggests that there's a subtle difference between Rav Dessler and the Mutakalimun. That Rav Dessler, of course, believes that man has free will, but that God conforms to man's free will decisions as if man is creating things that he wishes to come to fruition and as if man is choosing, but really God is conforming with man's decisions to create new realities. And he quotes a, a, a statement from the Gemara that states that in reality, if a person steals a handful of seeds and plants them in the ground, really God should not allow those seeds to grow because justice dictates that stolen seeds should not bring benefits to the thief. But yet God conforms to man's free will decisions and allows and commands those seeds to grow. And he says this Gemara illustrates what Rav Dessler is referring to. It is God who is causing the seeds to grow, but it is the man who chose to steal, and man ultimately is responsible for his choices, even though God is constantly the one who is bringing man's free will choices to fruition in reality. Now, this is altogether possible that this is how the Mutakalimun would respond to Maimonides as well. But I think it's very important to note that the Rambam's view of reality is not something that is subscribed to by later Mikubalim, by later Kabbalistic thinkers. And in reality, Kabbalistic thinkers have much more in common with the Mutakalimun than with the Rambam. I thought you would find this fascinating. I find it fascinating. And the fact of the matter is that it is not necessary to subscribe to the type of model that the Rambam has suggested in order to believe that man has free will. Because free will, perhaps, as the Ishbitzer uh, say, is an illusion. We, we are in, in control of the thoughts that we make and the decisions that we make in our mind. But as to actually bringing our free will decisions to reality, that's up to God. And God conforms most of the time to our free will decisions and on occasion does not something really important to think about. And when you think about the words in our prayers, it's certainly easy to see how those words that God constantly renews creation is, is, is certainly consistent with the thinking of the Mutakalimun and with Rav Dessler, but it's not really consistent with the Rambam. The Rambam would have to interpret that phrase to mean that God is constantly supervising creation, creation and allowing it and maintaining it to continue. And with that, we will conclude and we'll continue, God willing, uh, next time. And um, I want to wish you all a wonderful day and a wonderful week. Take care now. Thanks, Rabbi.